This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we have two people on the show, and that is Alan Smith and Jessica Midkiff. And so they are the co-authors of the book, Men Fight for Me, the Role of Authentic Masculinity in Ending Sexual Exploitation and Trafficking. So both of them work with a nonprofit called Saving Innocence. That's an organization that basically serves and empowers and advocates for child victims of sex trafficking. Alan is the executive director for uh, Saving Innocence, and Jessica is actually a survivor of sex trafficking. So she was sold for sex thousands of times over a 10-year period in her life while she was a child, and she spent the last decade plus advocating for and helping younger victims of sex trafficking basically regain their mental and physical health and their faculties, and it's just an, an amazing thing that we were able to even talk to her, but this is going to be a little bit different than we've done interviews in the past, especially when we've had two other guests. So the first person I'm going to talk to is Alan by himself, and we're going to talk about the book. We're going to talk about some of the things that, that go into sex trafficking in the United States and some numbers and some things to look for. It's a really good time and a good interview with him. And then I'm just going to go right in. There's not going to be a break there in the middle. Maybe there'll be an ad that pops up, but then we're going to go right into my conversation with Jessica. And this is what I need to say. I talked to her for a, a long length of time. She and I did speak off air before I started recording the interview. And so if any of my questions, it, it, they shouldn't, they shouldn't, but I have to kind of, you know, cover my butt you know, for some of this type of stuff. If any of my questions seem like they were inappropriate or a little bit too personal or a little bit too direct, she and I spoke about that off air and we spoke about it again off air. She was completely fine with all my questions. She's had some bad interviews where people were in her words being kind of voyeuristic, asking her incredibly specific personal questions that you know, was basically serving that person individually. It wasn't serving an audience of any kind. So we definitely didn't cross that threshold or cross that line. But guys, this is a heavy one. This is a heavy one today. The subject matter obviously is very, very heavy. But guys, if we're going to be serious about pushing back darkness, because here at Undaunted Life, again, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness. If we're going to be serious about that, we can't just walk around with our eyes closed, pretending like these things don't happen. And we can't walk around all day just sanitizing things that are happening and, and just not even really engaging with what could be happening. Because there's some calls to action with this particular podcast and within the book, if you get it and read it, and you should. But the thing about it is, is there is so much evil in this world that could be stopped if men just said, no more, not on my watch. It's not happening, right? And so. That's the encouragement to a lot of you guys. Do not skip this one because it might be a little bit uncomfortable. Lean into this content, all right? So without further ado, let's get into it. Alan Smith, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm glad to have you here. I'm glad to, well, I'm actually not glad to talk about this subject matter, but it's an incredibly, incredibly important matter that we're going to be discussing today. I already warned the guys in the intro. It's going to be a little bit of a rougher one, but uh, we're just going to kind of lean into it. But as a means of introduction, I guess, could you just briefly give us a little bit of your professional background and how you ended up almost like backing in into working in the ending sex trafficking industry, if there is such a thing? Yeah, uh, my name is Alan Smith. I'm the executive director of Saving Innocence, an 11-year-old anti-human trafficking agency. And um, we focused on the recovery and restoration of child victims of sex trafficking. And uh, I've been with the agency for six years. So most of my adult life, I was going another direction. I was on the Young Life staff, faith-based organization, nonprofit, working for working with kids all over the place, all kinds of kids, um, and not specifically any a kid that was trafficked or anything like that. 
but after 25 years on that Young Life staff, it was time for a new challenge and new change. And so I stepped away, not knowing what the next step was, but I'd heard about Saving Innocence the year before. And something stood out to me as a dad with a daughter. Now, you don't have to be a dad. You don't have to be a daughter to care about this. But I believe that dads who have daughters, it hits uh, differently and a little in a little different kind of way. And it did for me, too. So I cold called him and cold texted the founder and uh, went and met with her. And I heard the two hour version on a one hour parking meter <laughs> and got a ticket in the process. Yeah. And uh, I was immediately in because um, like most guys and most people out there, I know your audience is predominantly men and, and that's predominantly my focus, my lane is I'm challenging men to look at this crime. Most men don't think of it in terms of here, big in our country, they think about it, you know, in Cambodia or some other place, you know, across the land. And, and uh, so here we are, I, I'm here, I, I'm not, I, I'm exactly where I wanna be right now. It's a great space for me to be in to, uh, to challenge men and protect children. Well, let's go ahead and kind of dig in a little bit further because everyone has heard sex trafficking. They've heard of child sex trafficking. They've heard of these things, but they're almost like just they're on the periphery. They don't really understand. So if you could, and this isn't a quiz by any means, but I know you know a lot of this by heart, give us some some numbers and some data uh, to give our audience an, an idea of just how big a problem this is right now, specifically in the United States. And, and even beyond that, I think one thing that was shocking that I read in the book that we're going to talk about here in a second is that the average age of someone's entry into being sex trafficked is 12 years old. Now that's the average for those of you that aren't math majors. That means there's a significant portion of the people that are below the age of 12, but you know, kind of make this come alive to us a little bit with some numbers. Yeah, no, the people that count things, uh, IJM is an organization that works internationally. Uh, that's what the I stands for. <laughs> and they say 40 to 45 million people enslaved worldwide, globally. And that's more people enslaved than it is slavery more people enslaved now than at any time in human history. Uh, if you bring it down now to our country, and that's where most people, if they've heard about child trafficking, they've heard about sex trafficking, they probably have thought about those other countries. Uh, what they don't know is it's made it to our shores in a big way. Uh, we focus on the child victims of sex trafficking, which is repugnant and repulsive. Uh, as you said, the average age of entry is about 12. Uh, again, people that kind of monitor all these stats, and I'll say this up front, it is hard to get a hard number because it's not like a bank robbery. We know exactly how many banks right. there are. It's robbed. There's video footage. There's 27 banks out robbed. We know that. This is in the shadows. It's in the darkness. It's you know hidden. It's not talked about. Um, but the best estimates, and I think, honestly, this is conservatively probably a little bit low, the best estimates of children being trafficked in the United States, and keep in mind, this is U.S.-born American citizens. Uh, these are not kids being shipped across the border, although that is happening to some degree for sure. Mm -hmm. But the, th those numbers are around 300,000, near as we can tell, children being trafficked at any given time. Uh, we did some work in the state of Texas about a year and a half ago, two years ago. They asked us to come and consult with them because they realized they had a, a big child trafficking problem. And they determined there was 80 or 90,000 children just in Texas alone. And now you look at all the other big population centers and you get to 300,000 pretty quickly and pretty easily. Yeah, I think by by state, the majority of our listeners to this show are in the state of Texas. And so that should be an eye opener for a lot of you guys that, you know, uh, there there's this 
there's this, always I have this kind of weight on me that I might've been in a diner somewhere. I might've been in a gas station with someone that was being trafficked and I was too, you know, busy trying to pick out what chips I wanted or busy with something going on on my phone. And it's just literally all around us. And in the book, you, you know, you talk about, you know, ways that you can kind of identify that. But uh, in the book, in the book that I, I keep alluding to and that I keep talking about is a book called Men Fight For Me, The Role of Authentic Masculinity in Ending Sexual Exploitation and Trafficking. And we'll get into a lot as to kind of why you're framing it that way, why you titled it that way. But one thing that you brought up in the book that I thought was very, very interesting is the common misconceptions about how certain people end up getting into sex trafficking. You know, we watch movies like that are sensational, like, like taken or something like that. And it's this, this big crazy thing over a couple of days. And then the, the people are kidnapped and things like that certainly do happen. But what are some of the more common ways that people end up being sex trafficked? Yeah. The most common way that we see is, uh, the would be pimp, the exploiter, uh, begins to masquerade as a boyfriend, if you will. And they, they, he comes along, he begins a process where he's grooming her, if you will, befriending her, sees her at a bus stop or at a school or, or, you know, walking home somewhere. And that, that trafficker, um, uh, pretends to be a boyfriend, pretends to be interested in her. And, and for about 80% of the kids that we're working with, they're already in the foster care system. And most of those kids have um, incurred a, a devastating, a traumatic you know, time period in their life before the trafficker ever entered their picture. They've been sexually abused, oftentimes by those that are supposed to be close to them, oftentimes family members. They put in the foster system. And now they're 10, 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. And they, they are yearning for what everyone at that age or any age is yearning for someone to pay attention to them, to notice them, to care about them, to love them, someone to protect them. All those kinds of things are sort of the human desires of, of the heart of all of us. And in walks a slightly older male usually, and he starts saying all those things that she's always wanted to hear. Mm -hmm. And for this particular child, she's never actually seen a good, healthy version of a male in her life that has protected and loved her appropriately. So she can't tell the difference. She doesn't see the warning signs because it seems better than she's ever had before. And oftentimes it actually is in the beginning. And so they become, you know, romantically involved. And, and at some point um, it becomes clear that his intentions, that she's a part of his business model. And she realizes very quickly, she can't say no. She'll be met with force oftentimes lethal force if she were to run or, or say, I don't want to do this. But, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of times it's really interesting, Kyle, because a lot of these young girls, mostly young girls, um, they, in their mind, from what they can see, they are willingly going along with it because, well, he's my boyfriend and he loves me and I love him. And I've never had that before. And she will likely do whatever he asks without much resistance in the beginning and then it turns ugly and dangerous and she's not allowed to resist at that point. So it's really tragic because right. he's praying. They're predators. They're actual predators out there preying on vulnerabilities, which is, you know, tragic. Yeah. And I've even seen documentaries that have kind of looked at people that are in the sex trafficking industry. And, you know, you think about pimps and that's just kind of like a colloquial thing we say in rap songs now, but it's an awful horrific thing that pimps actually are. They're not dudes riding around in fancy Cadillacs with fancy suits and, you know, the, the center points of, of particular, you know, rap and hip hop songs. Like these are absolutely horrific satanic human beings or they're acting at least in a satanic way. But one thing that you describe, so you describe in the book, a specific instance where a young girl that was in college, she was approached by a guy who gave her card said, Hey, you know, I, 
can, I can be your modeling agent. You're beautiful. You're, you're the top 1% of women on the planet. And then how it turned into, Hey, you need to go have sex with this guy. Hey, you need to go do this, this, and this. And I mean, you described it well there, but you get into specifics in the book to a degree. And in the book, you actually warn the reader that there are some, you know, pretty intense stories in the book and there are, but then you have this little quote that I found interesting. You said, however, rest assured, we won't stay in the dark places too long. Now for me and for what we do on this show is we don't hide away from the dark places. We dive into them because, you know, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness. And if you don't know where the darkness actually lives, or if you have this sanitized view of the darkness, it's going to be really, really hard for you to push back against it. And so from your perspective, help, help inform me because you actually live and work in this world. How valuable is it to be very explicit about what's going on. Because for me, when I tell someone about sex trafficking, they're like, oh man, that's horrible. But then when I tell them an individual story of a five-year-old girl that was raped 20 times in a night by by a street gang, then it hits them a little different. Am I making sense? Oh, you're, you're making total sense. And uh, and we certainly don't shy away. As you read the book, there's, there's plenty of uh, stories in there. Jessica, my co-author, tells her story in her first-person voice in chapter two, talks about being gang raped. Uh, she talks about seeing uh, girls in being waterboarded and being kept in dog cages. We do talk about some of that darkness, but here's what I've learned, Kyle, whether it's on a stage or at lunch <laughs> with one other person or in a small room in a living room, everybody hears that differently. And right. if we were to go all in with every conversation, we would lose much of the crowd at some point in time. And then they shut down. Now there may be a, maybe on this podcast, there's a bunch of burly studs who want to give it to me. I want to hear it all because I'm going to go take right. down the world. That's good. Okay. Well then that crowd will get a little different conversation, but um, we don't just want to live in the darkness all the time because most people want to see, okay, there is some hope. There's some redemption. There's some stories that most people want to attach themselves to something positive. And uh, while we don't, and I don't shy away from the horrific at all, there, I do have to pick and choose the audiences and who do I assess is ready for all of that. And, um, you know, right. yeah, the three-year-old, how about the three-month-old? How about the three-month-old being trafficked for sex? You know, we could talk about what that's like and the kind of physical injuries that she would be receiving. Now, most people don't want to hear all that, all that. You know, the documentaries and the movies that are coming out are great, but you literally couldn't produce a movie or a documentary and actually have it be actually really showing everything that's happening. It would be quadruple X rated and horrifically gross. And you'd have people throwing up. It's so, it's so brutal. So we, we get as close as we can to giving people what they need and enough for them mm -hmm. to act. That's kind of the idea. Fair enough. I appreciate you going into detail with that. And I want to go ahead and repeat uh, the title of the book here before I ask this next question, but it's Men Fight For Me, The Role of Authentic Masculinity in Ending Sexual Exploitation and Trafficking. So from the foreword of the book, and that was actually written by the former United States ambassador uh, for, com for to combat human trafficking, his name's John Richmond. He had this short quote here. In the context of sex trafficking, the vast majority of sex buyers are men and the majority of traffickers are men. A distorted and toxic view of masculinity has done real damage in our culture. The lack of authentic, healthy, and positive masculinity has reached a crisis point in our country. 
So I obviously agree with that sentiment. I disagree with almost everybody. If someone's using the framing of toxic masculinity, almost 100% of the time, I disagree with what they're calling toxic. But this right. is a perfect example of what toxic masculinity actually is. It's the abdication of your masculine role in society and allowing for the suffering of people that are weaker than you. Uh, and we can go a lot of different directions with something like this, but kind of give me the, the reasoning why you centered, like, like the center point, the hinge point of this entire book is basically grabbing men by their shirts and being like, you need to get in the game. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I, I agree with what you just said, uh, out in the world and this crazy, you know, internet, the, the social media and all the stuff, toxic masculinity has been exchanged just for healthy masculinity. Like it's almost politically incorrect to be a man anymore and certainly to be a strong, powerful man. And that's deemed as toxic. And so I'm reframing that in the book. If you think about the idea of toxic, a, a toxin is some kind of a poison. If you drink, you know, Drano or liquid plumber or something, you know, you drink something bad, you got to get it out because it's poisonous, it's toxic. And so there is a version of masculinity out there that is causing damage. It's breaking down, it's demeaning, it's, it's diluting uh, life and health and wholeness. And that's the kind of masculinity that we wanna change, the kind that brings pain rather than healing and strength. Um, and so that, you know, in, in life, when you can identify a particular problem, you know, last year, I had a little spot on my forehead. The doctor said, I don't like that. Let's take a look at it. Took a little piece out of it. He analyzed it and he said, yes, that's a little piece of skin cancer. Come on back in. We're going to dig it out. Great. It's gone. He was able to isolate and define what a problem was. I went in, it's fixed. Well, in this case, the problem is men. We are the problem. And someone might say, which problem you're talking about? I, I don't know. Pick any problem you might find. And I bet you find a bunch of idiot men behind it, causing it around the world in this particular sure. problem of exploitation all the way up into trafficking. It's absolutely men. They're by far the biggest uh, number of buyers are men. By far the biggest number of sellers are men. And it is toxic and unhealthy and bringing pain and suffering and oppression. That's the kind of manhood that we're trying to eliminate from culture. We're trying to rebuild a positive, healthy version of masculinity. And those that have a, have a, a personal faith, certainly uh, you know, that will be informed on what a positive, healthy male is. But someone who isn't necessarily faith-oriented, there's also a healthy, stronger version of masculinity, of manhood that they can ascribe to as well. And, and that's what we're hoping to do is get as, change as many men as possible because that's the answer to this problem. Absolutely. It's because if the men abdicate their responsibility, as I said earlier, it will continue to lead to the destruction of the Imago Dei, people that are made in the image of God. And Alan, just to be honest, before you even mentioned this in the book, all I could think about was porn. Porn, this yeah. is exactly... Uh, what's feeding into this. Um, it, it's just one of those things that people don't really realize, but there is a direct line, not a, not a, you know, you know, a scattered line or, or a crooked line. There's a direct straight line from the use of pornography to the sex trafficking industry. But a lot of men out there and a lot of young men that listen to this show, they don't believe me. Like they don't believe me. They're like, Hey, you know, I'm just, I'm just masturbating and I'm just using this as a masturbatory aid. It's no big deal. These women are rich. They're getting paid all kinds of money to do this. The men are there. Like there's a whole bunch of people there. Like no one's being hurt. These are just consenting adults. They're making the libertarian argument. Like, Hey, what is it? Your reason to legislate morality, that kind of nonsense. But tell us about the direct role of pornography and how it really, really aids what's going on with sex trafficking. Well, you're right. And it's not a dotted line. It's a firm, thick black line. It's the it's the on-ramp 
to the future buyers of sex and the future uh, sellers of sex. It's an on-ramp to the future victims of sex trafficking. They say the average age of first exposure is around eight years old. So you have a little eight, nine or 10 year old whose brain is not anywhere near ready to consume these kinds of images. They weren't meant to really ever consume them, but certainly at eight or nine, they're too immature to even process it. And with the benefit of neuroscience, they can talk about the fact that it actually rewires the human brain mm. and they become addicted to this pornography, which is a, obviously an unhealthy, dangerous version of some upside down sexuality. Now, to get at what you're asking, here's the thing. I have a friend who's going to be releasing a really powerful documentary uh, pretty soon. He's in, they're done with it. They're now in the process of figuring out how they're going to, who's going to buy it and how they're going to you know, make it available, et cetera. It's called Beyond Fantasy. When it comes out, get it. And he interviewed, spent five years interviewing everybody in the pornography industry. So many uh, of the actors, of the directors, the producers, all the way from the OG people who really even started it many, many years ago. And he, he said to me something chilling. He said, not some, not most, not many, but most. Most of the, the women, and men too, but most of the women that are portrayed in pornography, they're against their will. They're, they're experiencing a form of coercion. We've had tra trafficking victims, actual trafficking victims, controlled and owned by a third party, forcing them to go to a motel room, forcing them to go into some kind of a movie set, they turn a video camera on. Now they're raped and gang raped. And that makes itself onto a pornography website where there's millions of views. And one, one survivor said, every time someone's watching that video, they're watching me being raped. Now the problem, there's a lot of problems. This problem I want to talk about right now is if someone's watching pornography, you have no way of knowing who's there truly consensually and who is there against their will. And most of them are there against their will. And now I'm no lawyer. But unconsensual rape is uh, unconsensual sex is called rape. So my yeah. message to guys is, fellas, is, is this what we're is this what we've become? Where we're gonna after hours when our wife is maybe in bed and you've developed a little fetish or a little addiction, you're gonna turn on your computer or your smartphone, and you're gonna get some kind of pleasure out of watching somebody get raped. Now, pornography industry is a crime scene. There should be yellow police tape around every porn site. By participating in it, you're an accomplice to that crime. At the very least, you're aiding and abetting a felon. Well, and Alan, like to, to, to be honest with you, like the other thing that I would tell guys is I get pretty explicit about this particular topic. And I'm just like, imagine jerking off in a room where someone's being raped. Yeah. And people are like, right. oh my gosh, that's what a horrific thing to even say. I thought you were a Christian. What a horrible thing. But it's like, Oh, oh! So it's better because you're separated by a, a screen. Is that right. that has somehow makes it better? It's like, oh, you wouldn't do that if you were in the room with these people, actually watching it and smelling it and feeling it and all those different things. But somehow it, it's a lot different. And so uh, again, we could spend the rest of the day talking about the pornography issue, but I think uh, we we pretty much hit a home run on that. I, I do want to move on to something that you talked about in the book, and you only spent a little bit of time on it, so I want to get a little bit more context to it. You talked about increasing the penalties on buyers and exploiters inside the sex trafficking industry. Now for me, and I've said this many times on the podcast and I'll repeat it again, I think that rapists, 
and people that are uh, participating in rape should be castrated and killed. I think we should have the death penalty for rapists, especially for child rapists. I think you go straight to the front of the line, you get your one appeal, and then you're gone. So that's kind of how I feel about it. I know that's a fairly extreme position. And with the legal system in this country, that's not exactly a realistic position. But for you, when you talk about increasing the penalties on these buyers and exploiters, where would you like that to go? To what end? Well, I, I wouldn't necessarily argue with your position, although, yes, you did hit the nail on the head. It's a little unrealistic in today's progressive society to think that that would be a possibility. However, um, you know, depending on what county you're in and what your district attorney and what he's prosecuting, there's a number of uh, I don't want to get political here. I'm not sure what the deal is, but there's a lot of liberal progressive led cities, either governors, mayors or DAs that aren't prosecuting hardly anybody. They're not prosecuting a lot of crimes and they're going really soft on crime. They're removing the enhancements. And so um, there's almost no penalty for sex buyers right now, depending on what city you're in at all. Now, mm-hmm. there is on the books a, a minimum mandatory. I think it's 15 years for sex with a minor something like that. That's not enough. We should increase that. We should absolutely increase whatever, just a sex buyer, just make make that part of the crime illegal. There's actually a huge push right now to fully decriminalize all of what's called prostitution, which is going to be a disaster if and when that happens, because that's going to hurt more vulnerable people and especially children. So I, I, I would be up for increasing all, crime, all penalties for all versions of this crime to whatever they are. Now, here's the thing. We're not going to legislate our way out of this. Um, the, the problem is a broken men mostly, they've given their heart and their mind over to depravity, to brokenness, and we're not going to legislate out of it. There are people around the edges that will be deterred by stronger, by stronger penalties. There is the dentist, the little league coach that is dabbling around on the side buying sex. Other than that, he's not you know a bad guy. He's an upstanding member of community. He's doing a good job with his family. Other than that, big asterisk, I get it. Well, that guy who doesn't want to have his lose his career and lose his family, it may stop him. But there's a lot of people that aren't in that space. Uh, a higher penalty will absolutely affect some of the buyers, not all of them. But let's let's do yeah, that. Let's check that box. Let's check the box. Yeah. And here's the thing is you can say, well, that's probably not going to work. It's like, well, let's check the box and then see. Let's just see if it works in any way, shape or form. I'm okay with doing that experiment. And what that, what that discussion really leads into is the discussion you get in this kind of growing trend somehow about how people and specifically people in blue states, people in blue counties and, and, you know, blue areas wanting to decriminalize prostitution altogether. Right. So it's the same argument you'll hear on the, you know, Joe Rogan talk about how, Hey, if we just decriminalize all drugs, well, you know, the cartels just won't, won't kill people anymore. That's essentially a very distilled down version of that argument. It's a silly argument because when you increase the, the like supply of a particular thing, the demand will typically go up for something like this. Like if you, uh, you know, decriminalize the use of weed in the state of Oklahoma, which we have, then you're going to have more people that use it. And so people, the black market's actually going to grow. It's not going to recede. It's not going to go down. So what is your response to people that say, Hey, if we just decriminalize prostitution, all of the bad stuff will just magically float away. Well, I would say that they, they're uninformed on the realities of it. And um, you, what you just said is exactly correct, that uh, the market will expand. And what happens, we know every time there's an adult industry, there's a child industry joined at the hip. And so we could talk about adults who don't want to be there. But my big focus point with what I'm doing when I work at Saving Innocence is we've been taking care of the child victims. They're the ones who are most available. They're the ones who are most vulnerable. So when the market expands and the demand expands, 
the supply is going to fill that demand by any means necessary, and that's going to be children. There's going to be children, more kids that should be out running around playing hopscotch in the street and playing video games. There's going to be more of them uh, being serviced as sex slaves to serve, to take care of all the, the broken men that are now doing it uh, free of any kind of legal penalty. That's is what's going to happen. Now, if you want to talk about adults, there's also been a number of studies. 89% of all the women in the sex industry say they don't want to be doing it, but they don't see any other options. They don't see a way out. They don't know what to do because of their history of trauma, the lens that they're looking through. They don't see any way out. They don't know how to not do this. And so, okay, so you got nearly 90% of even the adults who would, don't want to do it. And now we're going to make it all legal. And so it's like, if you just say it out loud, the legalization of the buying and selling of vulnerable people, that's what we're going to do. Who want, Who's going to vote? Go to your thing in November, check that box. We're going to legalize the buying and selling of vulnerable people. Does that sound like a, a society that's you know upright and standing on their two feet? No, it sounds like an upside down society where pain and brokenness is winning. And that's exactly what would be happening. And we're all very, very comfortable with euphemisms. We don't call it uh, the you know destruction of a small human body inside the womb. We call it a woman's right to choose. Like we always, we like our euphemisms, especially societally because euphemisms fit really, really well in a t-shirt and on a bumper sticker. But you know, that's not the real world that most of us live in. Um, and Alan, you alluded to this a little bit earlier, just basically talking to the dads in this audience that have young girls, right? And so, and there are a lot of them in my audience that have daughters and sons, but specifically daughters. And you do address this in the book about the role that a present father plays in keeping his girls, his young girls, especially from falling into the life. You know, the life is, is this life of sex trafficking and those types of things. Cause some of them go in willingly at the beginning and then it starts their kind of cycle of being taken advantage of. Some are stolen and, and forced into this, but what specifically is the role of a present father aside from just making sure you don't just send your girl out into the world and hope she comes back. Yeah, us dads have an incredible responsibility, an incredible opportunity that so many dads have abdicated. So many dads have, uh, they're either physically not present or emotionally not present. And the, the, a little girl desperately needs to understand what a healthy man looks like before she goes out and encounter any age boy or man. She desperately is looking for role models. Okay, what can, what can I expect? What should I expect? from a future boyfriend or future future husband. And she is inundated with social media. If she's old enough to be on social media, she's inundated with the clowns at the Super Bowl halftime show that have made millions of dollars demeaning and degrading sex and demeaning and degrading violently women as their song lyrics. She's inundated with society that doesn't value life, that doesn't value women, which doesn't value sex. And so she absolutely is desperately looking for, searching for someone who will Treat a woman with respect. She's watching you with your wife or maybe your girlfriend. How do you treat women? She's watching you out. How do you treat, how do you speak to the waitress who's serving you dinner? She's trying to understand what, what she can expect. And with you not being present, she's left at the mercy of society, which has got a diminished, demeaned version of sexuality. So you're absolutely critical. And, I, and I'll just add, you asked about daughters, but your sons are the same way. Your little boys mm -hmm. are desperately looking. What does it mean? to be a, a healthy, authentic, real man. How does a man talk about women? What kind of things does a man allow in his house? What kind of music is he listening to? How does he treat the waitress? What's going on? I need to learn about what I need to do to be a man, to be a healthy man, to be the kind of husband and father and the best way, the really the only real way that your son or your daughter are gonna be able to understand that is watching you. You're the greatest 
teacher and classroom they'll ever have on this topic. So men, absolutely get involved. And I would say sit on the couch, watch TV shows, commercials as they come on, hit pause. We now have technology. You can pause it. You won't miss it. Don't You don't lose anything. And interpret. Hey, check out. What do you think that message was saying in that commercial? What do you think that girl in the commercial, what, what does it look like they're selling? If you didn't know they were selling shampoo, what do you think? What else are they selling in that commercial? Oh, they're selling her body. Oh, okay. Let's talk about that. So I think a healthy male in the house interpreting life as it's coming. You don't have to look for it. There's a daily dose coming. And if your kids are old enough, to, they, you gave them a, a, a smartphone and, and, you, and they're on social media, absolutely you have to be vigilant and be involved and interpret. Now, at some point, they're going to have to make their own decisions. And at some point, they do have to go to school and maybe go away, you know, go away to college, all those kinds of things. So you have a finite amount of time that you get to be an example. Here's what a healthy man, here's how a healthy man thinks, looks, and acts. And that will make an absolute difference. Most of the young girls that we see uh, at Saving Innocence have not had any healthy man present in their life. Now, not every little girl who doesn't have a dad present is going to be sucked down that path. But all of the girls that do get sucked down that path, it's common. They don't have a healthy male in their life that's that's loved them appropriately and protected them appropriately. So it's absolutely critical. Like job number one. Yeah, it's critical and it's all about being intentional. Here recently, we had a pastor on from New York City named John Tyson. He wrote a book called The Intentional Father. And that's part of it. It's like you don't just watch the game together and see the beer commercial with the woman just you know jumping around and letting her boobs flop everywhere and not not address that. And, and again, you even alluded to the Super Bowl halftime show this year. You had a lot of people that in terms of our modern culture of canceling people, they've all done horrific things uh, to, to women, the violence towards women and uh, things that are, that are known about that they just kind of mention now. It's just kind of like a funny thing. It's kind of like, oh, it's just a cultural thing that Dr. Dre's beating up several women is like, oh, but he makes great songs. I really, really like them. They're really catchy. But hey, I don't want to get off onto a tangent here because we're just wrapping up. This is the last question I have for you, Alan, uh, because okay. it's kind of one of those deals like you, you, you're in the business now. And part of the reason if sex trafficking is eliminated, you kind of have eliminated yourself out of the job. But I don't really see that you're too terribly <laughs> concerned about that. But give our audience the, the direct and specific calls to action for what they can do beyond just, you know, buying the book. Obviously, it'll guys It'll be in the show notes if you want to check that out. But go ahead and give us our calls to action. Yeah, absolutely. And and the website, fightforme.net, has the book and a lot of other conversations. We have a YouTube channel. A lot of people are, you know, we're having conversations kind of like this with people that were in the book. My call to action is for everybody. But really, in this little season of my life, it's really to men. And my challenge to men is to rise up, to get up, and to do something positive about this fight. Now, you don't need to go to a seminary and, and get a Bible degree on whether or not sex trafficking and demeaning women is okay. It doesn't take very long to look in the scripture. You find out where the kids are in the heart of God and the heart of Jesus. It does, you don't have to go to school and learn a, an academic degree. My challenge to men, number one, look at this crime, understand it. So go on a little rabbit hole, search down Google, go to savinginnocence.org, go to fightforme.net. There's a couple places to start there. Watch some documentaries, understand it. And now my question is, when they say, what can I do? I say, I don't know. What can you do? You know, Kyle, you have a podcast. You can have me on your podcast. Thank you. That's one thing you can do. How about anyone else? Where'd you go to school? What do you know? Who are your friends? What do they know? Do you have any money? Donate to a saving, uh, uh, well, you can't save innocence, but donate to a to an a anti-trafficking organization near you if you want. There's plenty of them in Texas if that's where a lot of your listeners are. Get involved tangibly. Do something. And I think the biggest thing that I want men to do is look in the mirror and take a good, honest look at yourself. And are you dabbling with things on your computer that are ultimately demeaning and hurting women and children? Are you 
going down a certain rabbit hole of jokes and conversations and sharing of memes on your phone with your buddies that are tearing down or building people up. If we can get our life in alignment with what we want the world to look like, that's step one. And now step two, be a leader, be a courageous leader in the community of men that you surround yourself with, whether it's on your neighborhood, whether it's in your church or, you know, your golf buddies or whoever they are, lead, be a leader amongst them, take them with you. And if we can get enough men living in this way, accepting the responsibilities around themselves, living courageously, standing up for injustice. Now there's no room in there for trafficking. There's no room in there for exploitation. There's no room in there to harm women and children. If we get enough men doing that, and, and that's one man at a time, that's my call to action. Get more educated, buy this book. Proceeds are going to survivors of sex trafficking and take another step forward and let's just keep moving in the right direction. Yeah. And there's no adjustment too small. You mentioned even earlier, and I'll give just a small example. I was part of this group text for, for a group of guys that I love. They're, they're, they're great dudes, but you know, these guys don't really come from a Christian worldview. So they would send memes and little gifts back and forth that, that had nudity and had, you know, different random things that, that I, I shouldn't be seeing that could be triggers for me. And I just told the guys one day, like via the text, I said, Hey guys, uh, this is my personal phone. Like I have this phone around my house and all these things. I don't want to see these images and I don't want anybody else in my house to see them on accident either. If you don't mind, if you're going to send images like this, do it on a different text without me included. And yeah. none of the guys were like, Oh God, what a guy. Are you just a prude and blah, blah. And every guy was like, yeah, yeah, man. Hey dude, I'm, I'm totally sorry about that. I didn't even think about it. Guys, those are the small adjustments that you can make. But again, yeah. we've talked about a lot of stuff on this podcast already. I'm really glad that you came on, but that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? <laughs> no, I mean, we, we could talk for three days if you wanted to, but I appreciate you giving us this platform and shining your light on this. We, we, we just, we don't have a minute to waste guys. We do not have a minute to waste. There's an urgent 911 emergency right now, today, tonight, within a mile of where you're listening to this podcast, someone's going to be abused tonight and today. And we need to say no more, not on my watch. And, and I'm here to help. And I hope that this book is helpful as well. All right, Alan Smith, thank you for coming on, on Daunted Life, a man's podcast. Thanks for having me. Jessica Midkiff, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm happy to talk to you today. Uh, you know, obviously I wish it was under different circumstances, but you're used to that because of the work that you've done. And as I said in the intro, you spent the last decade plus, so 10 plus years advocating for and helping younger victims of sex trafficking to really regain their their mental and physical health. And that's not something you can just, you know, flip a switch or snap your fingers and do. It's a long and arduous process. And the reason why you're able to do this is because you yourself were a longtime victim of sexual trafficking. And uh, you talk about this in the book. I've already... Uh, uh, intro the book earlier on that you were a part of, and you've detailed some of the things that kind of befell you in your life, things that you couldn't help or control. And really for you, I know it's a rough place to start, but we talked about it off air guys. So, uh, she's definitely expecting it, but you know, as early as the age of three, you were the victim of sexual abuse. Um, and that's just kind of something that you were around. So if you would kind of give our audience an idea of for you personally, what that was like as a child, because I know there's a lot of folks that, you know, are potentially confused uh, about what that could look like. They're thinking about it through the lens of an adult, uh, but they have children. And so they just want to kind of know. So how'd you go from, you know, suffering such abuse as a young child to where eventually you were being trafficked yourself? Oh, yeah. So, of course, it, it details a little bit in the book. But, um, yeah, I was abused early on and it. I don't remember every single bit of it, but I remember parts of it. Mm -hmm. And um, it was very violent. Um, it was very manipulative. Um, it was no healthy real adult, especially no healthy real man, 
would ever look at a child and say, hey, this child is super attractive. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Um, it was just kind of like, I, I basically, I'm a biracial, obviously I'm biracial. I was a biracial child. Um, at that time, you know, there were people out there that were mixed, but where I grew up, it wasn't a lot of them. Um, and so whatever the, I guess, whatever the, the, the attraction was Mm -hmm. to my physical appearance, like I, I couldn't speak from that lens, but it was there. And I think it was also, um, a power move as well just because at that time my mother was also being abused. And then she came to find out that I was also being abused by the same person. Um, and it, it just, it looked really hard. And from an early start, I thought that's what life was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. That was my norm. So these adults that were supposed to look after me and protect me and love me, this person was doing, you know, everything the op- in the opposite fashion. Um, but saying that he loved me and that he cared about me. Uh, So love early on was mixed with abuse and that was my norm as a child. And then moving forward from there, once you've been victimized, a lot of times people tend to be re-victimized over and over again because of like the, the stage that's already been set for them. So the set for me was, you know, I'm a sexual object. Mm -hmm. Um, That's all I'm really ever going to be. And, you know, I started conducting myself as such without even really understanding that that's what I was doing. And a lot of our kids go through a lot of that conditioning early on, too. And that's how you can find yourself um, being the prey of someone that doesn't have good intentions, you know, outside of a family unit or, you know, outside of where you're supposed to be safe. Uh, So I came into a number of characters over my life that sexually objectified me and kids, definitely the kids that we work with come into these characters on a regular basis. So it's like, okay, well, this is what I'm good for. This is what it's supposed to be. Sex and abuse constitute love. And I need to try to find love as much anywhere I can because every person wants to be loved. Every person, you know, craves companionship. And for us, it just looks different. It's not, it's not healthy. It's not normal. And so for someone to say, hey, I love you. We can make it big. We can do this. We can do that that seems appealing for a young person that seemed appealing for me. And that was one of the ways that um, generally speaking on how I got into being commercially sexually exploited. And so with that in mind, something that you brought up uh, that I kind of keyed in on is you use the word norms quite a bit. And you said that this was your norm. This was the norms that you had basically gotten used to. Did you have a sense? Cause, cause again, we're thinking about this as adults, so it can get a little bit scatterbrained, but when you're a child, when you're three, seven, you know, 10 years old, like when you're that young, did you have a sense that that was broken though? Because it was your norm, but did you have the, I guess the, the wherewithal to know this is immoral, this is wrong, this isn't, or because I know some victims have felt like, oh, if I think this is wrong, it's something wrong with me because obviously this is normal. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, most definitely. I mean, it felt wrong because, you know, it's like abusers, they, they say, oh, well, you know, we're going to keep it a secret because people won't understand, you know, our love or, you know, like I'm an adult, you're a child, who's going to believe you? Or, you know, so even if you have that initial fight back, like I always say, one of the first words to come out of a child's mouth when they're growing is no. That's like one of the first words aside from mama, dada, whatever, right? Usually a kid will have fun all day saying no. They want to see your expressions. They want to, you know, they love it. They start giggling and laughing. You want to take a bath? No. 
Right. Want to eat some ice cream now? Knowing dang well they want to eat some ice cream, you right. know. But they like to see, you know, how it affects you. You know, that's how they kind of get accustomed to building boundaries and stuff like that. I didn't really get the chance to build that boundary. If I said no, it was a smack across the face or something worse. And believe me, it got worse and worse and worse. And so, um, even if I felt as though it wasn't wrong, I was quickly taught that putting up a boundary was wrong too. And so like, as I got older, did I fully know better? No child really fully knows better. Right. Um, you know, I started having, you know, people in my family saying, Hey, that's not okay. Hey, that's not right. Because I would act out some of the sexual abuse things, um, that were happening to me and I would act them out. And, you know, I remember putting on a, a show because kids love to put on shows for people they love. And I was at my grandparents' house one day. I have a whole bunch of aunts. I stack on all these different clothes. I sit my grandparents down on the piano chair, which I have their piano now. And I'm like, I'm going to put on a show for you. So I started dancing like a ballerina and doing the whole thing. And then it turns into a full on striptease. You know, my grandfather was caught off guard. My grandmother being a preschool teacher, she was like, oh, no, something's wrong. And I remember she quickly grabbed me and I was like, well, didn't I make you happy because it made my abuser happy and I didn't really care about him. I cared about them and I wanted to make them happy. Early on, I started seeing myself as a sexual object. A lot of our kids do that where it's like, well, it makes this person happy and these people over here that I love, well, I'm going to show it. So it takes someone saying, no, that's not okay. What's happening? What's going on? What's wrong? Um, to kind of set something within you. But as time went on, because I was already groomed to be a sexual object, I learned how to keep certain things a secret. I still maneuvered as a sexual object. I learned that saying no would get me in a lot of trouble or get me harmed. So I always said yes. I've said yes up to adulthood for a lot of things, which played a part of the re-victimization. Yeah, but we fight against that with the kids that we work with too. Like they'll say no to certain things with us, but- we'll be, they'll be in like all kinds of different dangerous situations. And we'll be like, well, why didn't you say no? Which, I mean, we know, but we ask Mm -hmm. and it's because they want to, they want to sustain the level of violence or they don't want any violence inflicted on them. So it's, they're more so compelled to say yes in those harder situations and no to when someone's helping, because when someone's helping, it doesn't seem real. So, you know, the norms are literally switched, right? Even if by that time the kid knows it's already switched, it's a condition So the norm is abuse, sex, you know, uh, everything, relationships are transactional in every sense of the word. Like it's just a huge switch for the kids we work with. Right. And and we'll get back more into your personal experience, but I was going to ask this a little bit later, but it's pertinent now. How do you go about rehabilitating a child? Because even just some of the stuff you described right now, I know it's absolutely breaking the hearts, hopefully of every single person that's listening, uh, listening to it right now. But whenever you work with a child there at Saving Innocence and, and, and you start taking them down the path of kind of rebuilding them mentally and physically, how in the world do you even do that? If, if that's what their paradigm is, if this is what normal looks like, how do you switch that 180 degrees? So <laughs> that's a loaded question. Yeah, of um, so um, the biggest thing that we start out with is meeting the child and showing them that we're not going anywhere, regardless of whatever they say they do. It doesn't matter. They can cuss us out and call us everything, but the child of God, and we're still going to be there. So that's the, that's the, the base. And we we're we're trying to show them that we are safe people. We don't want anything from you, but to help you. We want to walk through life with you until you feel as though you have it yourself. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then also too, like just, well, I said the relationship building, um, helping kids with like some of the regular everyday things in life, you know, okay, you're moving into your first apartment, woohoo. Or, oh, you're signing up for school. Great. Let's do this. Oh, you need to buy some, like those simple little things that we would do with our kids. We're doing with them no matter what age they are, what stage in life they are. Um, there's a big thing that we kind of base how we work with the kids. It's, um, called, um, well, one of the things I use is the continuum of abuse. So it's kind of explaining what the child has gone through a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then we also use the, um, Ooh, what is it called again? I can't think of it right now. Um, so basically it, you know, it, there, there, there's different stages. Oh, stages of change. It's the stages of change model. So where they're pre-contemplative, contemplative, like, mm-hmm. and it just keeps going across the board. So we know how to come at the kid. If the kid is, for instance, pre-contemplative, they're not seeing a problem with the life that they're living because their support system is the exploiter and the people that are in that subculture. So we try to just add ourselves to the equation and not remove everything else, so to speak. Right. So we're removing the child physically, but a lot of times too, if we're like, your pimp is horrible. These people are horrible. They don't love you. They don't care about you. We've noticed over time that that wrecks the kid, right? So they're like, well, then who am I? Where do I go? So we try to meet them where they are, not remove everything, so to speak, but we do remove them out of the situation. So it's like, okay, well, you called your exploiter. All right. Well, how did that go? How does it make you feel? Like we go through these little things Mm -hmm. and stages with them. Um, And then if they're contemplative, They're like, you know what? I'm kind of thinking like this isn't the life for me. And usually the child has suffered like some type of heavy um, assault or something really heavy has gone on. And they're like, maybe I shouldn't be here. Maybe maybe I do need help. So if they're contemplative, then we start working on that plan and meeting them where they are there. Okay, well, look, we have this housing over here. You want to get out of the shelter. You want to do that. Like whatever it is, we start building that. But we build new people into the support system, which Mm -hmm. we're part of that. And we take our community partners as well. Um, we also, of, of course, the, the geographical stuff will move them if, if mo- the majority of the time, um, uh, uh, therapy is another big thing where we try to push the therapy. We ask the children to, um, look to their higher power and we say higher power because we understand that every child doesn't believe in God. And we know that there are cultural differences, but we reinforce if you, if you have a higher power reach to him. Hey, we'll go to the church with we, with you. We'll go to the temple with you. We'll do whatever it is we need to. So literally we're rebuilding. Even if the kid is already here and being groomed and being everything, we're starting and we're just building our way up. And a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times um, the kids establish, you know, trust within us and they're more so able to kind of hear us and listen to us and kind of work a program. But every program is different because every kid is different. So yeah, you have, you know, 50 kids that come in and they've all been commercially sexually exploited, but each one of their exploitation is different. So we try to meet them at those points. So, you know, every kid that's been commercially sexually exploited was not molested as a child, you know? Um, they probably had a older boyfriend, which this is a part of the continuum of abuse that we got from gems in New York, um, is they may not have been, uh, abused, you know, as a small child, but they were going to school one day and a guy pulled up in a really nice car 
and, you know, started like flirting or whatever and really worked on the girl. And then come to find out the dude was like 24 and the girl's 15. So there's this unequal power dynamic, right? Where it's a sexually exploitive situation, not commercially and not exactly pedophilia. It's more so like the hebophilia where they're into the postpubescent children, you know? And so they're engaging in certain things. They're just not having money exchange hands, but they're on their way to being commercially sexually exploited. I hope that was... No, that that's great. And you, you made the, the main point there, Jessica, which is it's very contextual to the actual child, right? And so you can't have this one size fits all. Okay, we're just going to put you into this mold and all of a sudden you're going to come out on the other end better. And I know there's a whole lot of stories and a whole lot of context there that we don't really have the time to get into. But I do want to get back to even for you specifically, because you mentioned that you were put into the commercial sex trade business. I believe that was around the age of 10 years old. And I think you, if I remember correctly, that was about 10 years worth of your life that you were commercial commercially, sexually trafficked. And so that that's astonishing for people to hear because, and that's something that I talked about with Alan to where it's like, I, I like going, I don't like it, but I feel it necessary to go into the darker sides and give giving the details. Because when people hear sex trafficking, they just kind of fill in the blanks with stuff, but they keep it fairly, you know, fairly sanitized. They, they keep it out of arm's length so they don't have to really deal with what that looks like, like on a day-to-day basis. And that's certainly not what I'm advocating for you to do. But describe to us kind of in your own way and in your own words, however you'd like to describe it, what that was like. Because I got to be honest, like I've thought about these types of things a lot because, you know, we try to equip men to push back darkness here. That's why Undaunted Life exists. But hearing in your own words where you would say that your pimp gave you a quota in in a day that you would have 10 to 25 sexual encounters in a day. And if you didn't hit your quota, like, like a salesman would, a lot of people in my audience are salespeople. If you didn't hit your quota, horrible things would happen. So just kind of talk us through what what a day in the life was of, of a you know young gal who's being sex trafficked in Southern California. Yeah. Well, in so <laughs> my my story is really complex. So we tried to put some some markers in there because that mm-hmm. it would just take probably 10 books, literally, right. if that. Um, but like a, a typical day, it it varied because I went through different stages of commercial sexual exploitation throughout that time where it was survival sex, where it was, you know, the boyfriend like, hey, I got this friend, you know, and I owe him money and I'm going to get beat up if I don't. And I had to do that or, you know, or it was the full blown in the life on the streets, online, on everything. And for that portion of it, um, I actually was forced to work in what they would call shifts. Right. So like how a regular job they have shifts. So I worked in what you would call almost like 72 hour shifts. So I had to make a quota morning uh, middle of the day and evening. I'd probably sleep maybe an hour or two in between time. If someone was driving, there were times that I had to drive myself and that's what they would call like automatic where you don't have the exploiter there with you. And I would have to drive from one place to another. And there were times I fell asleep a couple times, not many, but a couple times I fell asleep behind the wheel of the car. And by the grace of God, I was able to wake up in time. People were honking their horns, all kinds mm-hmm. of stuff. And this is being off of no-dos and Red Bulls and coffee. And and still, because I'm so tired, because I know I have to make this quota. And if you didn't, if I didn't make it in the first shift, I had to make up, make the quota for the second shift and whatever I didn't make in the first. So at the end of the day, if I didn't reach my mark, I was tortured, I think is the best or more general way to say it. It wasn't just a beating. It was actual torture um, and rape. So, um, it, 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 it plays a lot on your mind because the exploiter, if you don't make it, it's like, well, you brought this on yourself. 
You didn't do yeah. as I asked. We're trying to build something, whatever it is that they say. And I've heard everything across the board. And so you learned that because you didn't meet the mark that you're to blame and you deserve to be tortured, beaten, raped, whatever. Um, and there were a lot of times I did hit my mark and still suffered some type of beating or rape, you know? And so it's, it, it's net, like, it's basically how everything is set up to, is to keep you wondering, keep you guessing. You don't have an understanding of like real time or, you know, mm-hmm. days, whatever it is, you just don't, you're, you're constantly on the go. Nothing is like a, a regular day for like, you know, the business person. So if the business person doesn't meet their quota, it's not exactly going to, keep them from paying their bills or their mortgage or whatever the case is. But if they don't hit the quota consistently, then, okay, those things will probably come into where it's like, okay, got to do something because we're going to be homeless. Mm-hmm. If you didn't hit your quota for one day in that life, it's not the end of the world, but we don't know that. We're taught that it's the end of the world and we're going to be out on our butts and we're useless and just the whole nine. So in the life we the it, the exploiters do use the business model um but they just use it i guess the way that they use it so um you know it's a business for them but we don't understand in those times exactly what it is that they're doing to us i learned some years back that that's what they use the business model it all made sense to me when i learned it um and yeah yeah, it, it's it's the same thing, but not exactly the same thing. We're punished severely if we don't meet the mark. And sometimes the exploiters take, make the mark extremely high where it's like, okay, how am I going to do this? You know, and then other days it's you make it and you're still not good enough. But if you do it at a job, you're good enough. Even if you get halfway there, you're good enough. But for us, it's never good enough. But that's a ploy to keep us in the life to keep us dependent on the person that is abusing and selling us. Right. Just to keep that cycle going. And one thing that I, I appreciate that you've done, and I want to make sure that I can make this transition with my own vernacular is you keep saying exploiters, 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 whereas, you know, most people would just refer to them as pimps and you've used the word pimp as well. But something that, that was interesting as I was thinking through how I was going to prepare for this interview is we kind of live in this culture where being a pimp is a cool thing, right? Like, oh, that dude's a pimp or, oh, look at that guy in that Cadillac and the nice suit and the cane and like, oh, it's a pimp thing. When I was yeah. in junior high, the first cologne I ever owned was a bottle of pimp, right? Cause it was from like, I don't know, like Gadzooks yeah. or whatever, like crazy store that was like hot topic or something, wherever that was. And that's like, Oh, you, that's what you want to be. Right. But what that word is, is it's describing a horrifically evil human being. And so for you, like, and, and I don't know what kind of listen uh, music you listen to, but even in, in pop culture, whether it's rap music or hip hop or in, in a lot of, you know, music or sorry, in a lot of like movies and, and television entertainment, there's always kind of that, that character, that pimp type character. How do you feel about that when you see people that just look at that thing and they're like, they have no idea. They have no idea what a pimp actually is. And yet they're like, oh, that'd be cool. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, we've definitely been living in a society where it's like, it is so cool to be a pimp. You got the girls, you got the money, you got the ride, you got this, you got like everything. And really it's been set up that way, right? Is for everybody to think like, oh, this is the cool person. But to be known as someone that's being bought and sold, it's never been a cool thing, right? Mm -hmm. It's disgusting. It's dirty. It's nasty. So they never made, excuse my language, but they've never made a perfume called ho or prostitute, right? Because if those words are stuck to you, it's, like you don't want to you don't want to be aligned with that even though in this culture now to be commercially sexually exploited um it's popular as well too now um extremely so but 
with the culture with the pimp thing, so it's kind of almost like people don't know. They see like the huggy bears and they think about like dolomite and stuff like that. Those fun caricatures. They don't exactly think of like exactly what they're doing, but pimps are so skilled to not fully exactly show you what it is that they do. Right. They're going to only show you the glamorous side. And it's really messed up that there's glamour for pimps, but there's not glamour for the people that are being exploited. So, um, it, it irks me. I do listen to, I still listen to rap and hip hop. Some of this newer stuff I can't really <laughs> catch on to cause I'm older, right. Right. you know, yeah. I'm like, what in the hell are they saying? Um, no, one knows. no, it, all of it's mumbling, you know, right. but like I grew up listening to Dr. Dre. I grew up listening to Wu-Tang Clan and I grew up listening to Snoop Dogg and Tupac and all of them too. That's a part of the culture. Mm. Um, but do I listen to it as frequently? Probably not. I listen to more so oldies now, I think. Um, you know, like the Tempries, the Temptations and, you know, whatever. And I listen to my country music. I listen to my pop. I listen to my rock. I listen I listen to everything. Mm-hmm. Um, do Am I in tune with a lot of the hip hop and the rap anymore? No. Do I still listen to it occasionally? Yeah. But I also have an understanding of where these people were coming from, what the climate was at that time, where everything was, gangster rap, all that. Like I understood, um, and I think a lot of people don't understand. They kind of think of it as like it's glamorous. So someone that didn't grow up in that culture, they're going to see it as glamorous. Someone that grew up in the culture, I understood what they were talking about. Was it mm-hmm. exactly right? No, but I understood it. And so that's when you get a lot of kids that listen or they look at these movies like Bossing Up and you know all these kind of like black exploitation films and and some of the hood movies and stuff they're like oh this is amazing this is great i want to be like this to an extent for kids that grew up in the culture we were already that so like there's a really really fine line and i think that's where parents kind of come into play with talking to their kids and monitoring um you know what it is that they listen to if they're listening to something like what i used to do with my daughter oh you're looking at that are you listening to that okay let's process that because at the end of the day this stuff is always going to be here no matter how much we fight, it probably dropped down some, but it's always going to be here. So it's best for parents to kind of like speak up and talk to their kids and listen and, and be really in tune. Um, but does it frustrate me? Definitely to hear people like pimp my ride, pimp this out, pimp that out. Like it, it's kind of like a slap in the face because right. I have to actually deal with real pimps. The kids that we work with have to deal with real pimps and not understanding fully what the culture is. I like to say exploiter because exploiter does not sound cool. Exploiter is calling it exactly what it is. You know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. when you listen to music too, they still talk about some of the pimp stuff in all genres, if you really listen to it, right? And so I would like to separate the word pimp from exploiter to an extent, that there's a bridge, but pimp to everybody seems cool nowadays. Exploiter is exactly what it is. So that's why I kind of interchange a little bit. You'll hear me say pimp a little bit, but more so exploiter because I want people to lock in that they're raping, they're beating, they're robbing, they're... Uh, molesting they're doing all these different things and even down to the point of they're even murdering these kids i don't i can't tell you how many kids that we've come across and or i've come across in the years of doing this work and even the young ladies that i was being exploited with out in that life that are no longer here with us because they were murdered either by the exploiter or by the buyer which we you know we call the trick or the john um i don't like the word john uh buyer is great you know, that these are people, these are kids, these are people that are victims that are being exploited 
but they're also being murdered. If you tell, you're going to die. If you don't do what I say, you're going to die. If I want to, I, I had a exploiter tell me when I was at the end of my rope that his plan was to drive me to the desert, kill me and bury my body because he was going to get out of the life. And I was at the end of my rope. Like how selfish is that? And how sick is that? You yeah. know, so th- people need to understand what comes along with that pimp word. And people need to understand that this is an exploiter. This is a rapist, a killer, a beater, a, all these different things. There's nothing glamorous about being an exploiter. Yeah. It's not an aspirational identity. Like, but you're the suburban kid listening to this music or watching this, you know, television show or something like that. And you're like, Oh my gosh, wouldn't that be awesome? But again, they don't show everything. Like you don't get everything in the lyrics. I'm glad you kind of set the record straight about that. But for, for you, Jessica, around the age of 20, you actually made it out of the life. And so you've used that, use that phrase light. Like that's what a lot of people talked about. Like that's kind of when you started your transition out, but it kind of begs the question and y'all do address this in the book. There's a lot of people that would ignorantly just say, why didn't she just leave? Why didn't she just get out of the life? And if I'm being honest, I would probably say something like that too, before I read the book, before I like really thought about it and really thought about the exploitation and the mind control and the physicality of some of these people, these exploiters trying to really just hold down and pin down your entire life, but kind of describe, cause I know it wasn't an easy transition. It wasn't just like, I'm out of the life today. It was kind of a, an in and out kind of a thing, but explain to us how people do get out of the life because it does seem like a life sentence for a lot of these young ladies and young boys as well. Yeah. I mean, once you're in, you're in, you know, and that's just what it is. I still have exploiters. I, I'm I'm close to 40. Okay. I still have exploiters and people that still try to contact me on social media. So my block game is strong, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> um, right. you know, but it, it's, it's getting out is, is a really difficult or hard thing to say. Some people get out the first time and they're out and they're back with their families or they're doing whatever and they're doing well. You know, but even for someone that's doing super well, they still have to stop, be with themselves, right? And now you have this this will going in your head or this reel where it's showing you everything that you've done. You know what I mean? And like, how do you cope with that? A lot of people that get out of their life and they were exploited as kids, a lot of them turn to different substances, whether it's alcohol, you know, marijuana or the hard stuff, you know, like the coping stuff. Um, for me, I got out, yeah, at 20, a couple days before my 21st birthday. And I was in that program for maybe roughly almost six months. And it was hell for me because I actually had to sit still in all of my abuse, all of my torture, all of my near death experiences, everything. And even when I got out for that time, I still went back to the life after a while. I didn't have any skills. I didn't really have a, a full-blown support system. I trusted no man. And then when I did date, I dated guys, even if they weren't exploiters, they mirrored a lot of the same things that the exploiters did. You know what I mean? There are a lot of things that can basically pull you back into the life. And so instead of me going fully back in, I danced for a while and then kept some regulars, you know, which is still not okay. It's still dangerous. Mm. Um, it took me... It took me longer than 20 years old to fully be out of the life. And then when I was out for maybe about a year, like fully out, not engaging in dancing, anything, then I started, you know, like volunteering at the old program I went through, you know, and then kind of fell into this work. And I was in school to be a nurse, you know, but like in that short span of time, I jumped right over to the next thing, but it took me well into my twenties 
to actually get my life together. You know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. I remember even before my 20th birthday, I tried to leave and run and escape. And I would go home to my grandparents' house. My mom would be there. My grandparents would be there. My daughter was there at the time. And my exploiter knew where I lived, knew where my family lived. He'd pull up. And it's like, even if he's not there, he's already instilled in me. And this is for the girls too. I'm always going to come for you. I'm always going to know what you're doing. I'm always going to be there. Like the super all knowing. I remember, do you remember those chirp phones? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I remember trying to escape one day and I hopped in these guys car um, over by where the stadium is now out here. Mm -hmm. So, cause that was a really popular place back then to be bought and sold and still kind of is, especially during the, all the stuff. And, um, I remember I hopped in this car and my exploiter, he kept, you know, reaching out to me and he was like, Oh, I know where you are. I know where you are. And there was no way to track the phones back then. Like there was no way for one person to track the chirp phone back then. Cause they were fairly new. And he was like, yeah, I got a tracker on you. I know exactly where you are, blah, 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 blah. And it was so convincing. And I was so freaked out. I actually jumped out of these guys' car and they were trying to get me to safety. They were trying to get me like to the police station or a shelter. It was one or the other. And I jumped out the car because I was like, he's going to find me. He's going to hurt me. He's going to hurt them. And I went back to him, took the beating and went back to him and worked for a while. And then I tried to escape again, you know, and this went on for a while too, because I was already getting tired. And so it's really difficult, you know, when people say, oh, well, why don't you just get out? There's so much psychological and emotional warfare and damage already done by the time the exploiter kind of lets you do what you do. Nine times out of 10, you're going to go back. I think on average for a domestic violence relationship, on average, it takes about seven times for a person to successfully leave on average. So I always say that commercial sexual exploitation is domestic violence on steroids on top of steroids. So it takes a high number of times for someone to get away. You have the love ties because a lot of them will be like, I love you, introduce you to their families. Um, They'll actually build out this whole family unit for you. And a lot of times the kids are looking for the family unit. I just want somebody to love me and care about me. Mm -hmm. I just want to belong. And a lot of kids want to belong. Like look at how many adults want to belong. Mm -hmm. The need to belong is so strong within a kid that's growing. You know what I mean? Because that's a part of that. That's one of the building blocks for a child to grow into a healthy adult is to have the, the, the camaraderie and the, you know, the togetherness we need companions. And so the exploiters, they build things like that, or say if they don't build a relationship like that, they'll, uh, they'll take pictures like nude pictures. If you leave, I'm going to post these at your school. I'm going to send these to your parents. Oh, I know where your parents stay. So if you don't do as I say, I'm going to hurt your parents and I'm going to hurt your little sister. I'm going to turn your sister out. There's so many different things that it doesn't have to be physical to keep someone in. And people don't get to really see that. They're just like, if you're not in, in, a, in a cage and you're not chained up, then you should be able to get away with no problem. It's not that simple. I've had police knock on the door and I covered for my exploiter. You know what I mean? Right. It's way more than physical. It's because you describe in the book how there are people that are kept in cages. There are little kids kept mm-hmm. in cages that are in sex trafficking. But then again, it's not just about the physical warfare. It's about the psychological warfare that these exploiters are, are doing to you. And again, you, like to, to someone who's been exploited, I'm sure there's been some times when you've like chastised yourself, but you have to remember like your brain's not fully developed until you're 25. To, so to expect like a 12 year old to have the wherewithal to be able to get away, which isn't just a physical act, but it's a mental act. There's got to be timing and time 
attacked. It, like that's just not really in the cards for a lot of these people. But the thing is, is that you, you did eventually get out and you have this quote, it's a short quote from men fight for me that I thought was interesting. So I'd like you to give me a little bit more follow up on it. It says, looking back, I feel as if God was pushing me out of the life and making a way of escape. Now, of all the people that I know of, you are one of the people that are in the category of individuals that can be very, very angry at God and or say that your life is proof that he he couldn't possibly exist because of all the horrific, terrible things that have happened to you. And yet you've mentioned God in this conversation. You mentioned God in the book. Uh, you obviously seem to be a woman of faith. So walk me through that, that, that you could still cling to, to something like that. Whereas most people who typically have a very easy sheltered life would say, well, look at all the bad things happening in the world. How could I believe in this, you know, creator God that absolutely loves every single one of his beings? Walk me through that. Yeah, no, I mean, I definitely turned my back on God at times in, in life because I was like, if, God is real, then why am I going through this? Like, was I a bad person? Or, you know what I mean? As a kid, I questioned it. But I think one of the big things that, like, kind of, I was able to, like, maintain some type of faith. Um, my grandmother was a huge prayer warrior. You know, my grandfather was a pastor. And the level of prayer that I felt like people, you know, some people are like, oh, no, like, prayer doesn't work. I really do believe prayer works. And there were times, literally, one time I'll talk about one time in, in particular, just to give a little context, mm. I was going on a, what they would call a date when you're being bought and sold. And I'm in the car with this guy and this guy is like, literally as we're driving closer and closer to this destination, he is losing himself. He's losing his mind. And I remember we parked and I'm talking to him and, um, he turns to me and looks at me and then he's, I can't do this. I can't do this. And he's rocking. And it wasn't like, oh, I can't sleep with you or whatever. This was something dark and sinister. And you could see him, he's reaching like he's going to do something. And I'm speaking to him and I'm like, oh, you don't have to do it if you don't want to. It's all good. And I'm talking him out of it. So I'm thinking at the time that, you know, I'm, I'm doing this, like, you know, my, my mouthpiece is just so sharp <laughs> that mm -hmm. I talked myself out of being raped or killed, you know, or both. And it was so funny. I, um, I got a call from my mom and my mom, she could sometimes feel when something was happening. And she was like, your grandmother told me to call and your grandmother hasn't stopped praying. Your grandmother's in like, she's physically, like she's praying, praying. And my grandmother was bedridden at the time, very sick. So she couldn't do a lot at all. She really couldn't do anything. And my grandmother would just pray. She would go into this thing. She can't hear anybody. She's just praying. And I really do believe that she prayed me up out of that. Because it's it just so happens how it all went, the timing and everything. And my grandmother is like spiritually in tune. And I, I do believe that people can feel one another, especially when they love each other. And then when they have God that's tying it all together, they can pray you out of some of the craziest things. And not saying that, you know, if my time came, then God was probably like, probably like you suffered enough, come home. But it was kind of like, I was like, nope, it's not your time yet. You know, and so like, that was one of the things that got me out of, you know, that kind of reinstilled kind of more faith in me. And when things would get crazy, I would just start praying. And for a lot of it, you could see that there were things that eased up or things didn't happen. I should have been dead a long time ago, at least a dozen times. And somehow I'm still here. And so, you know, it, God's always played a part, but he wasn't huge, but God knew I needed him. It's kind of like he was there in the midnight hour every single time because he's like, your story's not done. You're not done. 
And now I know for sure, full circle, I was meant to go through certain things. Like God didn't do it to me. God mm-hmm. steps back, right? And he allows. I was supposed to be here so I could help other kids where their faith may not be as strong as mine was. And mine was shook, you know? So it's kind of like, you know, God is like, you have this capacity to bring others closer to me, you know? And so that's how I've kind of taken that whole situation. And I would pray. And for the few good things that did happen in my life, that was God. I wouldn't be anything without him. Do I still struggle with my faith sometimes? Yes, but I don't struggle with God. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it absolutely makes sense. Yeah. And And so we have a lot of kids that go through not believing in God and I'll, I'll sit with them and, you know, they'll ask me like, why do you believe in God if you can't see him? And I'd be like, I don't have all the answers, but I know I feel him. I have faith. I've seen what he's done for me. Well, how do you know it's not you? Hey, you know what? I don't know, but I choose to believe. And when I say, usually if I tell kids I choose to believe, they're like, you choose it? You know, and that's one of those openings, you know what I mean? Because they're like, oh, there's a choice, which a lot of kids have choice removed away from them. So I've used a lot of my higher power, blessing, faith, and not just outright telling them God and Jesus, you know? So in a way, I, I, I'm i a warrior for God, I guess, in that way. But Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I think, you know, when you're talking about God and leading people to the Father, like there are times when you you do that explicitly and you show them the gospel but as long as a lot of the stuff you're doing leads them to to the good news that's that's the redeeming word and that's what we get uh, when we see in the first four books of the new testament but even something you said earlier just here recently uh, a very very close friend of mine suffered a, a deep personal tragedy and i know that people are going to try to say you know silly things like you know uh you know everything happens for a reason but they mean it secularly or you know even other people on the like crazy side they could be like well there must have been some sin in one of y'all's lives because of something that happened to you, you know, that kind of a thing. And the thing about it is, is like when you assume that there's no good that can come from a situation, you're assuming the judgment seat and the viewership of God, because you, it, while you were in the life, I bet you there's a lot of people that would have been very self-righteous and saying, there's no way God could possibly allow this. Look at what's happening to this poor girl, Jessica. And yet here you are today, close to 40 years old saying, no, I had to go through that so God could use me. It's just an incredible uh, indictment for people whose faith is so small because they've led such an easy life and they don't realize it. And their, their faith can just be pushed over with just like the smallest little breeze because they just haven't really ever experienced anything. I know we're, we're running short on time, but I did want to ask something like this. And this is, you know, it's somewhat personal, but I think that we we came to a little bit of an agreement off air that, yeah, you, we have some good comfortability in terms of this conversation, but I am curious. Um, how difficult is it for you as a grown adult woman who's no longer in the life to be in a, a committed relationship with a man? You've mentioned earlier in this podcast, uh, earlier in this interview that, you know, trusting a man like you, you couldn't trust a man for good freaking reason. Yeah. I mean, you had every reason in the world not to trust a man. So, um, do you have that capability to be in that type of a committed dating or, or, or marriage husband type relationship? Do you feel like you have that in you? I know that's a personal question, but in, on the other side, do you feel like you could come to a place where you could uh, forgive or have you forgiven your exploiters? Because these men branded you, right? They, they altered your body in more ways than one, right? I mean, they, you know, you have a cover up tattoo on your neck because you know, you, you were, you were branded, uh, for one of your, one of your exploiters. So that that's a lot in one question I realize, but I, I know I'm trying to mush some things together here towards the end, but just yeah. walk me through that if you don't mind. Uh, I've dated and 
didn't always, I haven't really picked great guys, but I think part of it too is like, I'm still not fully trusting. Um, I struggle with different levels of intimacy. I struggle with, of, of course, the trust is a really big one. So without trust, you can't really achieve full intimacy. And I'm not speaking of like sex. Sex is a whole other ballpark where I lose connection with the sex. So it's like, I'm still healing from all that, but the intimacy of allowing someone to hug me, to hold my hand, to do certain things, because I'm like, okay, so what's your angle? Yeah. Because a lot of men that I run into, um, you know, I've, I've been a public figure for a long time out here in LA County. So I've had a lot of men Google me, you know, and, and pull up information on me and they're like, oh, this is what you used to do. And I think you need a friend and I don't need a person to come in, you know, kind of like not wholeheartedly or within it, most of the men come with angles. The men that I trust, um, they're my friends. They're my support. Alan's one of the number one men that I trust. There's another man named Jim that I really trust. Uh, another man named Marquise I trust. My uncles, well, not all of them, but <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's more of like a, a brotherly friend, uncle kind of relationship. Intimate, deep relationship, intimacy wise, no. Like I'm single right now. Um, because I need to heal more because I'm going to, it's kind of almost rule of thumb is like, I'm attracting how I feel about myself to a degree. So I'm not fully aligned with where I need to be. So I'm going to attract certain things. And a lot of times the men that I do attract sexually objectify me. That's very, uh, it's very, uh, what do you call it? It's very similar to how I grew up. And mm-hmm. so if a man comes at me, I need to, uh, I'm hoping that a godly man comes to me, to be honest, and a man that has patience and understanding, you know, and sees that, okay, yeah, you're beautiful to me, all this other stuff, but sees more within me. And I'm working on seeing more within myself. So I understand that my person is not here yet, but I do have people that see a lot in me now, men that I'm friends with, they see a lot of me now. So it's helping to restore me as far as a relationship. I would love to have a relationship, a healthy one. <laughs> Yeah, but I'm yeah. not fully there yet, and some of these guys are a little crazy. <laughs> so, yeah. um, and I just I don't want to be sexually objectified. I want to be healthy. So, um, definitely to answer your question is yeah, I struggle. I struggle hard. Um, and I know one day it'll get better. But a lot of our kids they struggle really, really hard, and it takes them a long time. Like it's taken me a long time. And some kids, you know, they grow up into young adults and they really find their person. It's just a matter of where the healing is and whoever that person is, is is that the person that God has aligned me with? And I haven't met that person that God has aligned me with yet. Right. So, well, I, I envy your perspective and your strength. Again, it, reading what I read uh, and knowing what I know about your story to hear you saying these words, it's it's a little bit shocking and it'd be even more shocking if I didn't believe in a God and a redeeming, all-powerful God. But um, last question I have for you, because this is a kind of our call to action uh, You know, with all this as well, because there's one quote specifically from you in this book that's haunting. And haunting is the only word I can think think to, to apply to this. But I, I love that you said it because it, it put guys in the mindset of you've got to know this stuff is going on. So I'll read it back to you here. Tonight, when you tuck your kids into bed, you can imagine the hundreds of thousands of kids just getting ready to go out for quote unquote work. My hope and prayer would be for you to be impacted enough to ask more questions and ultimately get involved in this fight. My only request of you is that you respect me for sharing all of this personal information enough to take some kind of action. Children and young women like me need you to fight for them. 
Um, and again, the name of the book is men fight for me. So I know you're talking to the men, the audience you're talking to right now is overwhelmingly men. So take us through wh why you decided to do that quote, because I felt like it was a very powerful way to end your contribution to the book. Yeah, because men are needed in this fight. And so like past experiences, like men haven't always respected me speaking up on my story or speaking on the story of others. And it's like, to look, listen to it and see it through a different lens, hear it on a different level, hear it deeper, that this isn't just an inner city thing. This isn't just a minority thing or just a, or, or a white thing or a boy thing or a girl thing, or, you know, like don't categorize it. It's listen to the information. Men are a really big part of the solution, but men also play a very big part in the problem. So if we can kind of switch that and men are listening, men are seeing, and they're doing something and they're being active and they're like, Hey, I remember this lady's voice. Like mm -hmm. if, if I was able to do that just a little bit, maybe they could change someone else's life. If someone would have come up to me in the street and said, Hey, I'm taking you out of this. I'm here to fight for you. No, this isn't going to happen. Just imagine I probably could have gotten a lot more help and I could have gotten a lot better earlier on. You know what I mean? It's men by biologically, however you want to say it, are protectors by nature. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Um, I know we live in a, in a kind of a feminist world and all kinds of stuff. And I'm not saying that we're weak and, you know, we're these delicate flowers. If you blow a certain way, we just wither and fall apart. We'll fight for ourselves. But it's something really special when a man stands up and says, no, not her. Not today. Mm -hmm. Nah, she ain't got nobody to fight. I'm going to fight for her. You know, that backing, it's the duel. That's how God created us. You know, men are the, 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 the protectors. And I guess women are kind of like nurturers. Um, I'm learning that too. Um, yeah. and so it's really important because like we have this ever growing problem. It's always been here, but it's more mainstream. People are able to get into our children's, you know, bedrooms at night, you know, through their iPhones and their, their tablets. And, you know, like strangers are walking in and out of our, our walking in and out of our homes, you know, without physically being there and having access to our children. And so it's like, there's a lot that we have to do. If no one took anything else from me today or from reading the book, at least just take respect what's given to you. Even if you don't fully agree with it, you could respect it. Right. And start mm -hmm. trying to do something. Even if you're not going into the community, you may have a daughter, a niece, you know, a cousin or grandchild do something. And then for the young men too, start, tr start teaching the men, uh, the young boys, what, you know, authentic, real masculinity looks like, because they're going to end up with our daughters one day. You know what I mean? One day they're going to be fathers one day. So we all go hand in hand. So if you take nothing else, like run with this, teach your boys, teach the girls, protect the girls, even protect the boys. Cause that's a whole other conversation. Boys are actually in higher demand. The girls are, but we see a lot of the girls, but that's a whole other conversation for another day. Our kids are in trouble. And we as adults have to stand up and do something. If you see something, say something. If at the very least you buy this book, just go buy the book and read it and then give it to somebody that you think will benefit from it. It never hurts to have a little bit of a, get a little education around, you know, the topic because our children are in trouble and our children are going to grow into adults that may become in trouble, you know? So um, I hope that wasn't long winded, but just a little bit of. 
That's great. Uh, men need to realize that if you put your head in the sand and pretend that darkness isn't around you, the darkness is still there when you open your eyes. So uh, I really appreciate you letting us get into all this stuff. I know it was personal, but it's part of your story and it's part of what makes you an incredibly strong young lady that you're able to talk about these things and really make a difference. But that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? Yeah, I just, you know, thank you for allowing me to be a part of your platform. I know it took a lot for us to get here. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, just thank you for asking like great questions. And I I thank all of your listeners too, for tuning in and, you know, wanting to be a part of the solution, whether they know it or not, and to get out there and go buy the book, uh, fightforme.net, and it'll connect you to Amazon. Um, And you can purchase as many books as you want. And just know that this book, a a lot of the proceeds or the majority of the proceeds, aside from some of the logistical stuff, goes to um, survivors. So you're supporting one way or another without even knowing and just continue to stay blessed and, and stay protected. And, you know, I I just I thank you guys. I think you um, you're amazing. You, Kyle, you're amazing. And you're listeners are amazing. And I hope I get to come back and talk to you again. Absolutely. I appreciate it very much. Jessica Midkiff, thank you for coming on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thank you. I'll see you again. Thank you guys so much for sticking with us through the end. I know that was a tough one for a lot of you guys, but we really appreciate Alan and Jessica coming on and telling us a little bit about their stories and what's going on here in the United States and really around the globe as well. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost at Undaunted Life. Our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So the link I've got for you today, or the links rather, I've got links to the Saving Innocence webpage and also a couple different links that will let you get to the book, Men Fight For Me, The Role of Authentic Masculinity in Ending Sexual Exploitation and trafficking. So you can go to fightforme.net. And also I've got the link there to where you can buy it on Amazon. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it wherever you're listening to this. Please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and TikTok and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And we want to also thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness. Keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. Keep seeking the Lion of Judah.